0: I think of Christmas in a lot of different ways. Um, I love Christmas. I love the excitement of everything. I love the closeness I get to usually have with my family. Um, I love the memories I have as a kid growing up. But one of the ways I think of Christmas is a time of sort of unrivaled disconnect between the celebration of the holiday in the world around us and its true meaning. As God explains it to us. What I mean is that at Christmas time you see the whole world lit up like you do at no other time in the year with, with this sort of brightness literally and figuratively with all these pointers saying this is important and this is wonderful and this is a time of joy but the world often has a really hard time explaining to itself why Christmas is wonderful. When I was a kid, I was called to rejoice in Christmas because of what Mrs. Claus did to reconcile the rift between Mr. Heatmiser and Mr. Freeze. And I don't know if you guys remember the the battle between Mr. Heatmiser and Mr. Freeze, the battle to save Christmas, but it was a CBS special, it was Claymation Santa, And in this terrible crisis, Santa was convinced that people did not believe in him anymore, which meant that Christmas would be canceled. But in the nick of time, Mrs. Claus was able to bring peace to the Miser brothers, who respectively controlled the hot weather, the heat Miser, and the cold weather, Mr. Freeze. And thus somehow, through the peace that was made between the brothers, it ensured that it would snow, and therefore Christmas would go on. I do not know how to explain it either you know I, I i so that's 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 just what you know the kind of stuff that the world can throw at you at christmas time in mass whether it's the the uh you know elf movie or the the uh the love actually movie it's just you know there's a lot of of pretense about christmas that have nothing to do with christmas right and of course we know that the world can go deeper than this, right? Christmas means a lot more than that to millions of people. It it means family. It means giving meaningful gifts. It means memories of loved ones past. But but the truth is what it doesn't mean deep in the hearts of millions of people and what it can even fail to mean for us is what it means to God. And And so today, to help us get there, to Lord willing through his word, to see and savor and celebrate the meaning of Christmas. I'm going to start this Christmas message in what you might feel is quite a strange place. I, I, I wondered in my head about calling this the weirdest Christmas message you've ever heard. Because I want to start in, in quite a stark, sobering place with Christmas. I want to start this Christmas message in the context of the wrath of God see as uh, author jerry bridges explains in his book transforming grace he gives us great illustration of, of a jeweler and what a jeweler needs to do to really help the customer see the brilliance and the beauty of a diamond as well as he can is he takes out the darkest velvet cloth he has and he spreads it across the table as a backdrop and it's on that cloth that he takes these diamonds and puts them down so that they can be seen in their brilliance. So that's what I want to start with today, is the black backdrop of Christmas. For, for this reason, I, I think that we will be helped to appreciate Christmas because we'll be able to see the truth of the darkness that Christmas comes to re- revolve, resolve. So I'm not trying to be morbid for the sake of morbidity as we as we look at difficult things today. Uh, You know, please understand that what I want us to do is to understand the difficult situation that Christmas comes to resolve. So we're going to look at, uh, hi Sarah, thank you for joining us. Uh, We're going to look at the sad and foreboding backdrop of the wrath of God. And our hope is that in looking at that and then taking out the diamond of the birth of our Savior, we will treasure the coming of Christ with more deep joy than we could otherwise. So, the wrath of God is our starting place, and one of the best places I know of in Scripture to explain the wrath of God, its causes, and its horrific consequences is this chapter that I've alluded to, Romans 1, that we've touched on a few times in the last several weeks as well. So again, as uncomfortable as it might feel at times, I ask you to follow along with me as we search the Scriptures here to experience the meaning of Christmas more deeply. Starting in verse 18, I'll read to 21. We'll take a break. We'll read for more, take a break to explain, and so on. Um, So starting at 18, I'll read to through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their reasonings and their senseless hearts were darkened. Lord, please help us. Please help me. So Paul tells us that God's wrath is being manifested. It's being revealed. And what you need to understand here is that what Paul is saying is it's happening now. It's apparent now. We can see it now. And we'll see in a moment what it is that he's talking about when he says it's being revealed, that we can see it now. But first, Paul is concerned with the reason for God's wrath. And the reason is that mankind suppresses the truth about God. And mankind does this in unrighteousness, Paul says. As we talked about recently, God created man as a reasoning and rational being. And he also created man with a conscience that understands the idea of right and wrong. Mankind understands like no other creature that he is not the creator. Mankind understands like no other creature that he is a created being. He understands intuitively the laws of cause and effect, that nothing comes from nothing. And therefore, mankind understands intuitively that there is, Paul says, an eternal and divine source from which all things come. Once more, mankind has this understanding that there is a right, there is a wrong. If a man is slapped, he is surprised. And if there's no cause or no reason, he is offended because he has an intuitive sense of right and wrong in him. And so man understands outside of him through what's made, that he is a creature and that there is a creator. And he understands inside of him through his conscience that there is right and wrong and that he should choose the right and reject the wrong. But as we saw in the garden narrative, mankind decided that he would not follow God. He decided that God was not trustworthy, and he rejected God. And since he denied and has since denied the truth about God to himself. And it's important to note here that we were meant to Never suppress the truth about God. That's the inversion of what Paul is saying, that we did suppress the truth about God. It's important to understand, this is really important, that we were never meant to suppress the truth about God. We were created to do exactly the opposite. We were meant to proclaim the truth about God with our very lives. Do you remember what God said before he made Adam and Eve? What was his purpose in making Adam and Eve? He said in the Council of the Trinity, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our likeness of all of creation. Mankind, we, you and I were created to proclaim the truth about who God is most accurately. The universe was meant to look at man and woman and say, that is what God is like. Our devotion to God Our trust in God, our delight in God, our obedience to God, we're all meant to proclaim. He is trustworthy. He is beautiful. He is good. He is majestic. He is reliable. He is kind. He is strong. He is tender. He is gentle. He is holy. He is pure. He is satisfying. And in our love for God, they would see we would see in each other. The universe would see God's worth. And and indeed, they would see an image of God as He exists in the Trinity. One God and three persons, all devoted to one another in love. And so our devotion to God is is a proclamation, a reflection of the devotion God has to Himself in the Godhead. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit and the Spirit loves the Father and the Son and so on and so on and so our love for God was to be an image of God's love within himself for the Trinity and in this picture of man made like God there was to be this united loving union of creator and the creation mankind the apex of creation Bearing his image. We were with God to be in unity together. But Paul says in verse 21, we did not honor God as the God worthy of our devotion and of our gratefulness. We rejected him. We suppressed the truth about him. We said he's not trustworthy. He's not worth it. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind, birds, four footed animals, crawling creatures. Paul's description of this horrible exchange of exchanging the creator for the creation has a particular context of idolatry in the times that he's writing. But don't get too lost on the animal themes here of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. It's not so much about animals, but it's about this exchange that we made in trading in the Creator and His glory and His goodness for the creation and worshipping the creation instead of the Creator. Worshipping the things the Maker made instead of the Maker. If you go down to verse 25, Paul says it more simply, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creator, the creature rather than the creator. So the principle here is that mankind intended to be in union as creature with his creator, shifted his ultimate hope from his creator to what is made, the creation. And instead of finding our hope in God, we found our hope in money, or we have found our hope in getting it if we don't have it. Instead of finding our hope in God, we find our hope in our pride, our accomplishments, or our hope of performing them. We find our hope in our possessions, or the hope of acquiring them. We find our hope in the praise and acceptance of what others think of us, or our hope of earning it. We find our hope in our nation, our ethnicity, our 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 powerful weapons in our defense department. We, we find our hope in all kinds of things that are created either by God or indirectly by man. And in all that, there's, there's this foundational idea of idolatry that connects with Paul talking about four-footed animals and flying things or the image of corruptible man. The point is, just as many of our ancestors put their hope in the sun or the lion or a fertile woman or statues that looked like them, we do the same whenever we put our greatest hope in created things. I want to be careful here because there could be a little bit of, of, of a misunderstanding here and, and it could lead to some uh, poor thinking and some um, condemnation where none should be. God did create us to to find joy and love in relationships. He created us to look at sunsets and enjoy them and love them. He created us to look at animals and wonder about them and be excited about the created flowers and the gardens. And he he created us to enjoy and delight in what he has made, but he never created us to exchange himself for what is made. He created us to enjoy creation ultimately as a gift from him. And is uh, a picture of his love for us and his creativity and his beauty towards us to enjoy but that's not what we've done as a race Paul says we have turned our backs on God and we have found our hope in the creation instead of the creator and the sad and terrible reality is that in response to our rejection of our creator and the unity that we were supposed to have with him and the denial of the honor that he is due, God has responded with what might seem a surprising kind of wrath. He has responded with wrath, and in a particular way here in Romans 1, a way that might seem surprising if you're not familiar with it. And by the way, when you hear the word wrath, don't think of drunken rage. Don't think of a basketball coach who's throwing chairs across the court in his anger. When you think of God's wrath, you can think of righteous, fitting, appropriate anger and response to sin. His wrath is measured. It's appropriate. It's just, and it's particular. It's not out of control. It's not crazy. If it's passionate, it's because it's justly passionate. And having said all that, here is what Romans describes as the manifestation of God's wrath, starting in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up to vile impurity in the lusts of their hearts, so that their bodies would be dishonored. For they exchanged the truth of God for falsehood, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen." So notice something really striking here at the start. God's wrath is manifested in that because we rejected Him, He gives us up to our own sinful hearts. He doesn't make us have sinful hearts. He doesn't tempt us to have sinful hearts. No. Our sinful hearts are growing, and as they turn from God and become dead to Him, they're becoming alive to wickedness because He's the only source of goodness to begin with and to end with. And so there's no source, there's no way, there's no road to righteousness without Him. And so as our hearts turn from God, they can only turn to wickedness. And what God does is He gives us up to that wickedness. He doesn't restrain our hearts or protect our hearts in this passage, though I think he's done that over history in many ways. What Paul is saying here is that there is a a general response that God has of, of giving us over to our sinful hearts' desires. And now we come to a very tricky and surprising elaboration of the result that's going to take a couple of minutes. Paul explains something that's going to be kind of, jarring at first but I, I want us there's a reason for it, it's being here in this text and I want us to stop and touch on it here look at verses 26 through 27. Paul says for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchange natural relations for that which is contrary to nature and likewise the men too abandon natural relations with women and burned in their desire toward one another, males with males, committing shameful acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. This is jarring. Very near the front of the explanation of God's wrath made manifest, we have this picture of of homosexuality. There's much I can't go into here, but I, I do want us to note that Paul is describing homosexuality, and he is describing it here for a reason. Although it's a startling picture, it's not because God necessarily thinks homosexuality is a worse sin than other sins. I believe Paul puts it at the forefront of this explanation of God's wrath to illustrate something very provoking and compelling. He is trying to illustrate, I believe, that the loving union between God and mankind that God desired and that God deserved has gone terribly wrong and has been terribly reversed by man's rejection of God. And and here's why I think this. Do you recall what the Bible, and in particular Paul says of marriage in Ephesians 5? Do you recall that he calls marriage between a man and a woman a metaphor, a representation of Christ And his bride. Do you remember that in Ephesians 5? Paul says that earthly marriage is a living metaphor of Christ and the church. And do you recall that in the Old Testament, God called Israel his wife and God called himself Israel's husband? Do you recall that at Revelation, at the end of time, what we see is the marriage supper of the lamb, the bride of Christ comes to her groom and they're one forever. Again and again in scripture, human sexuality in the oneness of marriage is a divine picture of the loving union between creator and creation between God and his people between Christ and his bride in the old Testament and the new Testament. Man represents God. He plays the part of this metaphor of the Lord. And woman represents mankind. She plays the part in this metaphor of mankind, the apex of creation. But now, look what's happened in Romans 1. Mankind has rejected this union. And God has, in turn, expressed wrath towards mankind. The marriage is not happening. The union between God and people is reversed and torn apart. And so in detailing homosexuality here, Paul is describing, in one of the most dramatic ways he can, the reversal, the perversion, the undoing of God's intended union with man. The undoing of the creator in loving oneness with his creation. And that, that human sexuality was always meant to express. Does that make sense? Did you follow that? Now, as God hands mankind over to their sinful hearts, as the union comes undone, as the reversal gets worse and worse, the woman no longer desires her husband, but she rejects him, just as mankind has rejected God and turned to himself, So the woman turns to herself. Similarly, the husband no longer desires the woman. The role of God is now at enmity with his people. So I believe what homosexuality represents is a terrible metaphor, just as marriage was a beautiful metaphor of the union of man, of the union of God and mankind, homosexuality represents the terrible metaphor for the disunion of God and mankind. And it continues going wrong from here because we reject God as our greatest good, look at what we're left to in verses 28 through 31. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. People having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, unmerciful. And so, just to emphasize, Paul is not singling out sexual sins. We see the whole kaleidoscope of evil as the human heart unravels further away from God. Paul's list includes all of us. It lists greed and envy. Who doesn't long for more than they need? Who hasn't coveted what somebody else has? Who doesn't easily find security in possessions? Who doesn't easily find themselves pounded by fear at the loss of possessions instead of hoping in God? Paul cites slander and gossip and, and this would intimate not just the sharing of gossip, but the love of hearing it. Turn on any news cycle. I don't care if it's CNN or Fox or Drudge or MSNBC. And what you'll see again and again and again are stories about people in ruin, in trouble, in scandal that matter not one iota to any of us. And we're drawn to this. Aren't we drawn to this? Go on Facebook or Twitter or Snap or wherever you go, and you'll just see people biting and devouring each other over and over and over again in public without any shame. And don't we get drawn into that? Don't we enjoy a good fight? And of course, disobedience to God's authorities. Parents represent the first authority that God places in the lives of mankind. As Adam and Eve were the first parents in the garden, But of course, the disobedience goes beyond our parents. Arrogance, implicit here, is all pride over others. That shows up in systemic racism, but it shows up in exalting our possessions over another's. Because of our rejection of God, Paul is saying, God gives us over to our own hearts. And without God, our hearts have nothing good. They just have corruption and perversion. Some of the last items he mentions are some of the saddest and more heartbreaking and relatable ones. He says that man has become unmerciful, cold, without understanding, unable to be trustworthy. And then Paul, and as he moves into the next chapter, he puts us all in this picture. He says, you... You, reader, and he's writing to the church here, he says, You have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that matter in which you judge some someone else, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, you practice the same things. You who judge the homosexual, have you never lusted after a woman that's not your wife? You who judge the slanderer, have you never taken pride in your possessions and found satisfaction in what you have over somebody else's? And in verse 3, he adds a warning that none of us will escape the judgment of God. Not only do we experience the wrath of God currently as we watch the trajectory of mankind, but one day, Paul says, Mankind will experience the fullness of God's wrath when he justly and righteously judges us for our rebellion and brings it all to an end. Paul speaks of, in chapter 2, verse 5, the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. A lot is left to go unjudged in this world. A lot of unrighteousness continues on unjudged. A lot of wicked people died peacefully and securely in their beds over the last few millennia. God said, there is going to come a revelation of his righteous judgment, that nothing will be overlooked, nothing will be accounted for. Verse six says, God will repay each person according to his deeds. Verse 19 of chapter two, on the day when, according to my gospel, Paul says, God will judge the secrets of mankind through Jesus Christ. That day of wrath and judgment is a sad day for those who do not have Jesus Christ. On that day, Jesus says, many will be cast into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping of gnashing and teeth into a place described as eternal destruction, where Jesus says, the worm does not die and the fire does not go out. I can't do a larger treatment of eternal punishment here, but what's universal in scriptures is that it's an experience of just and fair and particular specific punishment fitting every person without any reprieve or ending. It is grieving and sad. And that's some of the more comfortable things to say about it. This is the awful dark backdrop laid at the table before the diamond of our Savior enters the picture. But before we get to that diamond, I I want to speak for a moment to a central objection. What about our good deeds? Mankind is certainly not as bad as he could be, right? And at times, virtuous deeds happen worthy of praise. And I would agree. I would say yes to both. The, The Bible nowhere contends that mankind is as bad as he could be. Nor does it say there are never times where mankind does a virtuous deed. But but I would say some other things too. First, the scriptures would say that our best deeds, as Christians or non-Christians, even those that have true good in them, they owe their sources. They owe their source to the goodness of God and his grace at work in believers and unbelievers alike. Number two, All our best deeds involve some degree of impurity, selfish motives that we're not aware of. For example, we may serve, but there's a part of us that's hoping to be noticed in our serving. We may serve to prove to ourselves out of guilt that we're not as bad as we think. And so there's a selfish pursuit of esteem here. Number three, there's no way, and this is important to see, There's no way that we could ever put God into our debt for our good deeds. For when we love someone or we show mercy to someone, we're only doing very imperfectly what we were always supposed to do perfectly. We're only doing what we were at the first created. We were created, Ecclesiastes says, we were created in righteousness. God made us perfect in the garden, in Adam. So we're only doing what we were always supposed to be. It doesn't put us in, it doesn't put God in our debt. Saying it put God in our debt is kind of like, let's think of the Mona Lisa painting, right? Maybe arguably the most beautiful painting ever created by Da Vinci. And after having been painted by Da Vinci, let's say that somehow the Mona Lisa somehow is able to come to life and mess up her own face on the canvas and smudge it and muck it all up. And then somehow she's able to do some touch-up work to make things not as bad as she had made them at first. She's able to fix a little bit of it. And then as she fixes a little bit of it, she looks to Da Vinci and she says, Do you know how much this painting is worth? I just did a million-dollar touch-up job. Right? I mean, Da Vinci would say, I created you perfect. All you did was mess it up. You've fixed some of the smudge you made, but I can't owe you anything. That's the way you were supposed to be. Of course, the metaphor breaks down. We, we cannot change the painting of our lives without God's grace. And nor can we see the painting very well. See, a huge part of, I, I think, of, of our predicament is that we have fallen so short as a race of people from the glorious image of God that we were made to express That to a great degree we've lost the ability even to judge ourselves rightly. Our corruption has affected our eyesight morally. But here's where Jesus comes in. When we look at Jesus, we see delight in God. When we look at Jesus, we see his passion to love his Father with all his being. Pure bright and ongoing we see his untroubled and unflinching trust in his father we see his unbreakable loyalty and allegiance to his father above all things we see his satisfaction his delight and his joy in his father above all things and we see how that was all expressed day after day, miracle after miracle, sign after sign, healing after healing, rebuke after rebuke. He was full of passion for his father's glory, and that led him to have a great compassion for all people and the worst of sinners, even a compassion and a love to lay down his very life. And, and so there I think we can see, even with imperfect eyes, we have the right metric of what we were meant to be. We have the right picture of what we were created to be and from how far we've fallen. Jesus really did love the Lord, his God, with all his mind, soul, and strength. Jesus really was the perfect image of God that we were created to be. He was God, the Son, who loves God, the Father, more than anything, but it was all operating in the heart, Of a man, human being like us. And so Jesus is the image of God that we were created to image to the universe, but have fallen so short of. We've perverted that image. We've lied about God to ourselves and to the universe. We've incurred his wrath and coming judgment. And into that backdrop comes the good news of this baby in a manger in Bethlehem. In Hark the Herald Angels, we sing, Mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. Mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. The writer says, he lays his glory by. He's saying he is Put his glory aside. If Christ would have shown the fullness of his deity, the fullness of his divine glory, I suppose he would have been so bright in that manger that Mary and Joseph could not even have looked at him. But Philippians 2 explains really well what it means that he laid his glory by. It says in Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. He laid his glory by. He emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, this is the image of God that we have fallen short from. This humble, gentle, glorious God coming in the form of man to show us what it means to love God with all his heart mind, soul, and strength. And there is a great and important irony here. We who sought to grasp being our own God, ruling our own lives, we corrupted our God-given glory as his image bearers. But Jesus, who was truly God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but willingly took on our manhood to serve us as a slave. Do you see the beauty in our Savior? Jesus, who was the only man who perfectly imaged the glory of God the way that we were supposed to, is the one who was made a man so that he could be slain for our perversion of the image of God. Jesus was the only man who perfectly imaged the glory of God the way that we were supposed to. And he's the one who was made a man just so that he could be slain for our perversion of the image of God. In What Child is This? William Dix asks and answers the reason for Christmas. We sang it this morning. He says, why lies he in such mean a state, that means such a humble place, where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christian fear. For sinners here, the silent word is pleading. Nails spear spears shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Nails and spears shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. And he did bear it for me and for you this little helpless babe came to rescue the world. First he came to rescue us from God's just wrath at our sin by absorbing that wrath himself. In your mind's eye, if you can, look upon that manger, look into the crib and see that little baby. But as you look at that baby, that tender little child, Listen to Isaiah. He was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well being was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. That little baby is the lamb of God being prepared for slaughter for you and for me. When Jesus' cousin John, John the Baptist, was only a little baby growing inside Elizabeth's womb, he leaped when he sensed God the Son growing in Mary's womb. He leaped with joy, just like we might have a childlike rejoicing at a nativity scene. But when John grew up and he saw Jesus, He barely recognized him, he says. He says, I would not have known him if the Spirit had not told me. And he proclaims over Jesus, as if he's seeing him for the first time, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what Jesus has done with Romans 1. He has taken away the wrath of God over our sin. He has saved us from the judgment to come. Do you remember our passage from Colossians 3 this September? Colossians 3, or sorry, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. One of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. And when you were dead in your wrongdoings and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him. Having forgiven us all our wrongdoings, having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So in Romans 1, it, it reads like an indictment. It reads like a certificate of debt against us. And there is a personalized Romans 1 for each of us in God's mind. You know some of it. You know some of what's on your indictment, your personalized Romans 1. Some of it you can barely admit. Some of it you can't even see. You don't even understand. But God sees it all. And this is what God does with your personalized Romans 1 debt. He brings this little baby into the world. He watches over him. He grows him. He delights in him. He does great and awesome miracles with him. He proclaims the truth of God's heart as it's never been proclaimed before to the world. And then for you and for me and for our personal Romans 1, for our sins, he punishes that baby grown into a man until every last ounce of god's justice is satisfied because every last sin everyone is paid for and now god says they're gone they're gone your sins as a reason to ever incur god's wrath they're gone As far as the east is from the west, they're gone. Your sins, as a reason to ever incur his eternal judgment, he remembers them no more. No more. They're paid in full. The angel said to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And that is what he does to all who trust him for his free gift of forgiveness. He says, I have saved you from your sins. I have canceled your debt. I have taken it out of the way. I have nailed your personalized Romans 1 to my cross and you bear it no more. Lastly, we need to know that this little baby came to do more than that. He came to do more than take away our sins and take away God's judgment. Hark the Herald also proclaims, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Jesus was born to give you a second birth, a new life, a new heart. This image of God that you were meant to project, that's been corrupted, that's been perverted, this reversal of God's image through sin, that reversal is being reversed. As far as the curse is found, he has come to reverse it all. Having forgiven you of your sin, God is now free to spend the rest of your life And into eternity, changing you, restoring you, making you gloriously like his son. Bridges puts it like this, because of Christ's death in our place, God's justice is now completely satisfied. God can now, without violating his justice or his moral law, extend his grace to us. He can show favor to those in themselves who deserved only wrath. Do you know that God, because Jesus Christ, has taken the judgment you deserve, God is now committed to only do you good. Romans 8 tells us that he works all things out for your good. And then it tells us a few verses later what that good is. And this brings us right back to Romans 1 and our our first creation. It says to be conformed to the image of his son. Your good is to be restored to that image of God's glory, not denying his glory anymore, not denying his honor anymore, but with your life, with your heart, shining forth his glory, his honor, his goodness. That's the glow. That's the goal of the second birth to restore you perfectly to the image of God that you were meant to bear. The image of Jesus that we see. And it's so much glorious than we often think. Sometimes we think that God's restoring us into moral perfection, right? We we, we think, when I'm restored, I will always speak kindly to my wife. I will always pay my bills on time. I won't cuss anymore. I won't get drunk anymore. I won't look at lustful images anymore. I will be a hard worker and a responsible husband or wife. You know, those things are all true as part of our sanctification plan. But they they fall so short. You know, the secret is, and this is horrible, but the secret is you could be all that and still be damned and still not be a Christian, still be condemned as an idolater. No, 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 that's, that's not it. Simply these moral perfection checklists. Think again on Romans 1. Why were we handed over to our sins? Because we did not honor God as God. We did not treat him as he deserved. We did not love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. and This is what Christ came to reverse and is reversing. His work in you is so much more than you obeying the speed limit or being kind to your co-worker, which of course you should pursue doing both things, but His work in you is much bigger. It is remaking you into the image of His Son. He is remaking you into the picture of someone who loves his father with all his being, who delights to do his or her father's will, who entrusts yourself fully to your father, who rests in your father's good plan for him, who is jealous for your father's name to be glorified, who is deeply and fully satisfied by your father's love above all other loves. This is the image of God. In man that Jesus came to restore in you this is the reversal of the tragedy of Romans 1 this is the reunification of the Creator with his creation the reconciliation of God to his people the bride coming back to her husband Redeemer and the husband Redeemer embracing and becoming one again with his bride This is his immovable goal. And he is determined to do this with a love for you that, as C.S. Lewis puts it, is relentless in its determination that we shall be cured at whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to him, as Lewis puts it. And that's why this Christmas you can look at your health fears, your job loss, your, your battle with anger, your fight against lust, your struggle with grief, at the loss of loved ones or the loss of relationships. You can look at your difficult, long-term, broken marriage situation. Fill in the blank for whatever situation that wars against your hope and your joy. And you can look At this child this baby Jesus and remember that God is committed to work it all out for your greatest good that God cares about your struggle so much that he sent his only son to resolve that struggle in your satisfaction and love and joy in him that he's committed to use it to accomplish so much more glorious than circumstantial resolution. He's after the restoration of your very soul to his soul. He's after oneness between you and him. And you can say this Christmas, thank you Father. Thank you for sending this little baby to take away your wrath from me. Thank you that you have done that. And you can say this Christmas, Thank you for sending him to restore your image, the image of Jesus in me. And though I feel so incomplete and so not done yet, Lord, so far from that, thank you that you're going to do it. You're going to bring to completion what you started. So please work all that you see fit to work in my life to restore that image because there's nothing greater I could ever want than being restored fully to you. That's the gift of Christmas. Our Savior has come to save us from our sins and restore us to the image that we were meant to have. In love with our Father, resting in our Father, rejoicing in our Father, and proclaiming our Father. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending our Savior to us. Thank you that we know him. Thank you that you will complete the work you started. Thank you, God, that nothing can separate us from your love. Because Jesus has taken away every reason why we would ever be separated from your love. I pray, God, that this Christmas we could... We could look at that little baby the eyes of our hearts and rejoice in the great reversal, the great restoration, Lord, the great salvation he's given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.